0: This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that's qxmd.com slash apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast Series, Pop-Up Podcast. My name is Stephanie Martin. I'm Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partners, Dr. Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, our Nursing Director, and Julie Arafay, our Simulation Director for Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. Today, we're talking about the five challenges we've identified with using checklists in obstetrics. And I want you to think about this for a minute. How many of you feel comfortable going grocery shopping without a checklist or without a grocery list? Have you ever gone to the store without a list and forgotten something? I mean, I do that every day. If I don't have my list, I am guaranteed to, to forget something or duplicate something. All of us have done it. But for most of us, we don't really think about going to the store as a stressful emergency situation. I mean, maybe if you had the whole family with you or something, but most of the time, it's a pretty low key situation. Yet we still are likely to forget something if we don't have our grocery list in front of us. We're all comfortable with that concept. Yet when we go into the hospital, we resist or we don't understand how a checklist can help us in an emergency situation in obstetrics. The goal of the checklist is to help clinicians do the right thing for the patient, especially in an emergency situation. Now, checklists are gonna differ depending on your institution, what kind of resources you have, you know, including staff, what your processes look like, your geography of your unit, et cetera. But there's always going to be some basic components that never change from unit to unit. So for example, all postpartum hemorrhage checklists are going to have something that includes medications, blood loss assessments, and how to treat uterine atony. But for example, how the team obtains those medications in a hemorrhage situation is going to different by location, by hospital. And if you think about it in healthcare, we've really come to accept that emergencies are chaotic. This chaotic approach to dealing with emergencies, especially in obstetrics, feels like normal to us. And so it's human beha- its human behavior and human instinct that when we try to implement things that try to bring order to chaos or take the chaos out of that emergency situation, we're gonna encounter resistance. Change always brings resistance. And But in some units you'll know and you'll observe, maybe in your own facilities, that emergencies are not chaotic. Maybe when you go to the ER and a trauma comes in, it, things look busy, but not chaotic and disorganized. And that's because there's structure around that emergency response. It's that lack of structure around the response that leads to the chaos. So what are the challenges in implementing the use of checklists in obstetric emergencies? We've identified that there are really five key challenges that clinicians face with using checklists in an obstetric emergency. Now, Julie, you have really extensive experience working with a lot of teams through simulation, and you've seen and studied these issues that come up with the use of checklists in emergencies, and in particular, obstetric emergencies. So can you take us through each one of these challenges that that we've identified? Thanks Stephanie.
1: I have had quite a bit of experience with checklists and how units and teams use checklists to really improve performance. With that said I think all of us understand there are some challenges with checklists as you said and I think one of the ones that I see the most often are clinicians saying I don't need a checklist almost like it's a badge of honor that they don't need a checklist, that they have all of this in their head. And that, that's, um, I think, arrogant. Um, and I don't mean to offend anyone there, but it's hard to remember every single thing that you need to do in an emergency or in a time of stress. We forget things. When you look at industries that are highly invested in safety, they always use checklists. For example, pilots fly the same plane usually every single time they fly, and they always use a checklist. They discuss things that could go wrong, and they use a checklist to determine how they're going to respond to that. This makes aviation very safe, and I guarantee you I'm happy they use that checklist every time I'm sitting on their plane. In medicine, we're dealing with people's lives, yet we think we don't need to use a checklist. And some people really argue about using a plane and a pilot and aviation and comparing it to healthcare, but I think the analogy has not been accurately applied. When I think about the analogy of healthcare to aviation, I don't see the patient as the plane, I see the patient as the weather. Because most of the time the weather is just fine, and the plane is easy to fly in weather, but when something comes up, if a, if a, a cert, certain wind comes up, or if the weather changes, then that is that change is what the pilot and the plane have to adapt to. So in my mind, the patient is weather. Now, another um, problem that I hear with people using checklists is it's cookbook medicine. They don't wanna use that because they're gonna forget how to manage conditions. This is different from the first challenge um, and in, in a lot of ways. First, some people think that having a checklist means a completion. You have to do everything on the checklist. And I know one of the frustrating things that uh, physicians and midwives have reported to me is that being made to go through every single point on the checklist. But this leads to um straying from the purpose of the checklist. Now, we all know that on the checklist there are some things that need to be done. As Stephanie mentioned, there are certain medications that need to be given, certain labs that need to be done, a a regimen of vital signs that need to be taken. But when you look at the checklist, what the checklist does for the midwife and the physician, is give them a list of things, a list of options. So when you're looking at a hemorrhaging woman, and you are the one making all of the decisions for that care, you can decide, is this a a patient that needs uterine tamponade? Or is this somebody that needs to move directly to hysterectomy? You don't have to do every single step on the checklist. This is where the art of medicine comes in. These are your options, based on your knowledge, your experience, and this particular patient. What is the best thing to do next, Suzanne? I know that you've had some
2: experience with this, right? And I, I really see this. I, I like the term options because it's not cookbook. It, it also entails the art of your assessments that you're going through with that particular patient that will lead you to that next decision and it really is a a way of just laying it out like so that you don't forget I love the grocery store analogy um, and that example Um, but as in healthcare when you're sitting there looking at this patient it's all individualized to that patient
0: yeah, I. As, you know, I look back on, you know, working with a whole bunch of different teams and taking care of these patients. Checklists. I think as a physician or a midwife, when you're being told what to do, it, it's it it can kind of get our hackles up and think, you know, well, you can't tell me how to practice medicine, and I know what I'm doing. But on the flip side, I see some, uh, particularly in the newer generation of, of physicians that are coming up, that are getting very comfortable with the idea of having protocols and guidelines that maybe some of us who have been practicing longer, you know, had to transition into, you know, they're a little bit more comfortable with using guidelines or checklists or whatever, perhaps. But I see the tendency for what I call getting checklisted to death. And I think that applies for both the patients and the providers. So as a physician or a midwife, you're like, well, I feel like these checklists are being forced on me. But on the flip side, physicians or midwives can get too hooked on the checklist and forget to see is the patient responding to the interventions that the checklist is requesting that you consider. So the checklist is intended to make you think about doing something, but it doesn't mean you can't bypass some of those things. So for example, if you've got a hemorrhaging patient and she needs a hysterectomy, you don't have to go through every single step in managing hemorrhage if the patient is not responding and needs the definitive treatment. Don't checklist the patient to death and skip the and delay doing the definitive treatment that's necessary. That's a great point. And I think one of the things
1: that you can use the checklist for when you've skipped steps is to reflect your thought process. This was not done because of this and this when you're writing a note. So if you're being held to a protocol and you have, for whatever reason, decided not to go through every step, then it's a clear indication of how you can reflect your thought process so that when you're writing your note, it's very clear what you were thinking. Another issue that checklists have, they are often created at a computer by people who may or may not be taking care of patients, and they may not test them. Uh, sometimes checklists are developed from protocols or guidelines that are written and never tested on the unit, so it's, it's unclear whether this protocol can actually be easily carried out on the unit. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't do the standard of care. That's, that's not what we're saying at all. But what we're saying is, when you write a protocol, you need to make sure that the unit and the system supports implementation of this protocol and the key actions that we all know are important for, for patient care. So when a checklist is written, they need to be vetted in the unit, in simulation, with staff that are going to be using the checklist. And for those who write checklists, please don't think this is a one and done. It is not. There are going to be revisions, there are going to be refinements. The checklist has to be able to be used easily and effectively by the person who has the checklist in their hands. So it may make perfect sense to you what you've got on the checklist, but if that doesn't translate to the people taking care of the patient at the bedside, the checklist is not gonna work. So that development needs to be interprofessional and it needs to be tested with a clear goal of refinement until it's right. So remember, the goal of the checklist is to help everyone do the right thing for the patient. Some checklists are beautifully written, but never used. And this becomes a legal liability. So if you have a checklist as part of your way you're supposed to be doing things, and you're not using them, that can be a liability. Now, Suzanne has had some experience
2: with this. Yes, I uh, recently had an experience with this when I was reviewing a a poor outcome on a patient. And the hospital guideline, policy, protocol, procedure, whatever you call them at your hospitals, and, and and really they all differ. But at this particular hospital, they had in their procedure, you know, one, do this, number two, do this. Uh, number three, utilize the hemorrhage checklist. And in that particular case, the checklist was never utilized and they missed several steps um, in management of hemorrhage for this particular patient and this patient died. And it became a liability for that hospital that they had put in their practice um, parameters that that would be utilized and even when giving their depositions, the nurses and physicians at that particular hospital both said, I've never used it. I know it's there, but we never use it. So we just skipped that. And, and again, the care of this patient, they missed many, many steps uh, in management of her hemorrhage.
1: That's a great example and one of the things I think that needs to be taken into account is that this is a new way of doing things. If you I watch a lot of video of emergencies and what I see are people come in and they put out fires. What needs to be done, they go get it done. What this needs to be done, they go get that done. There's really not a lot of structure. So when you're going from a system like that to one that's a little more structured, if you don't assign someone the responsibility of the checklist, it's likely not going to be used. One of the groups that I see use it the most often are new people on the unit because they're just not comfortable with what to do next or, or how things flow. So they are the first ones to grab the checklist, but. You want to integrate this into your practice so that you're going to be highly reliable. Being highly reliable means doing things very consistently. And to do things consistently, you need a checklist. So when you're figuring out who is the best person to have the checklist, figure this out in simulation. It may be a nurse, it may be a physician, it may be a midwife, whoever it is they require practice, and you re- and it requires getting everybody used to the idea that, hey, we've got a checklist, this is how we're going to use it. If there's a problem, let us know. We'll figure out if we need to change that process. And last, on number five of our challenges, checklists are often viewed as double documentation. No one wants to double document. That is, That is just awful. Um, I, myself, when I was at the bedside, have spent hours at the end of the shift trying to document.
2: I know, Suzanne, you have you have strong thoughts about this as well. Right. I, you know, I see when people think of checklist in obstetrics, a lot of times they think about the Pitocin checklist, you know, the... Um, prior to use or in-use checklists for Pitocin. What we're talking about here is a checklist used for an emergency. Um, the checklist for Pitocin is, a, is a, a way of looking at your labor pattern, you're looking at your uterine contractions, you're looking at do they meet specific criteria that are outlined um, and, and have been researched um, at a very large uh, hospital system and a lot of the physicians and nurses that are utilizing and, and seeing those checklists in clinical practice have, have pushed back and they've said, this is double documentation because we have to go to our checklist and then we have to d- go over to another screen or click onto another page to then do my uterine assessment and then do my fetal assessment. So what we're talking about in this Uh, podcast is the use of checklist in uh, OB emergencies, not a, a checklist in your documentation. And I do think that that could be refined, even with a simple we've met criteria versus documenting all through that checklist and then having to go to another page, for instance. That's a great point. We don't need more work at the bedside documenting,
1: that's for sure. Checklists, by and large, as as Suzanne said, for emergencies are definitely not intended to be used for documentation. They are a cognitive aid. They help you to look at quickly what must be done, what must be considered, and then guide what, what type of management you think this patient needs. So we've talked about five challenges, and you may be thinking, do we even need these, like should we even be doing this, because there seem to be a lot of challenges here. So what are the benefits? What what are we going to get out of all of this pain to use a checklist? Well, how many protocols do you have on your unit? Or I might even ask, how many emergencies do you have on your unit? And how do you respond to them? If you have a protocol for most of the major OB emergencies, which we hope you do, Those things change on a regular basis. There may be one thing that's tweaked here or one thing that's tweaked there. How often do those changes get accurately communicated to everybody on the unit? And that becomes a problem. Uh, I know several nurse managers I talk to say people don't read their emails. People get overwhelmed with these things. So how do you keep up with all of these changes? Checklists can help remove the need to memorize protocols and algorithms, some of which are incredibly complicated. So I think that's a very important way that checklists can help reliability in making sure that everybody is on the same page as the emergency starts. Now, if you think about emergency response, physician and nurse's roles overlap in some ways. in that both are thinking about what's going on and what needs to happen next, but they focus a bit on different things. So in any emergency, initially, there are many things that have to be done simultaneously, and that is overwhelming. It's overwhelming even in a simulation. People's heart rates go up. They get stressed about thinking about all of these things to do. So I had, um, experience in a study where we had to review video, um, many videos of a maternal cardiac arrest. And what we noticed was that the anesthesiologist was at the head of the bed, the obstetrician was at the foot of the bed, and the nurses were running around literally like ants. So when you have, um, an emergency, the anesthesiologist and the obstetrician or midwife are doing what it is they do. They're assessing, they're thinking about what to do next. The nurses are trying to get all of the tasks done. Does the patient need a catheter? Does the patient need, how often do vital signs need to be taken? What needs to be hooked up? Who else needs to be brought into the room? There are countless things that the nurses are doing. So when you look at the checklist, the checklist can help identify some of those key tasks and make sure they're being done. Are they being done? Has something been forgotten? Also, when you have a checklist and you're following through with the midwife, you can begin to see what is going to happen next. Because on the checklist, these are the next three things that whoever's caring for the patient is going to be considering. So it's very easy to walk over and say, is this, what you, is this where you're going next? I can get that ready for you. For example, if the patient's bleeding and a uterine tamponade device could be used, whoever has the checklist, let's say it's a nurse, can walk over to the midwife or the physician and say, are you gonna move to a uterine tamponade device next? If they say yes, that can be set up ahead of time so that when it's time to use it, it's not the order first time being given, it's going into their hands so they can use it immediately. So anticipating the next procedure, or anticipating the med, or the second IV, or a central line, or the massive transfusion protocol is really important. Now, for midwives and physicians, they might be thinking of how to get all of these tasks accomplished. But they're also focusing on the patient and what's happening with the patient and what they're gonna be doing next. So for them, the checklist kind of allows them to see where they're at in their management plan or in what they're thinking about doing. And they're taught to make these decisions. But if you think about what happens in the mind of the leader in the beginning of an emergency, let's just explore what that cognitive load is. So when you walk into the room, as the person who's responsible for this patient, you're assessing the patient, and quite honestly, you're pro- probably looking to see who, who is in there, uh, what staff is in there, you're thinking about roles, you're considering a differential diagnosis, you're anticipating next steps, you're thinking about options, you're trying to decide what's the best option, what, what order of options, what labs do you need? What medications do you need? How are you going to perform these procedures? Actually do something hands-on plus think through all of this, and then if someone new comes in the room, you're supposed to give them report. That's, that is a cognitive load that is very high. And on top of this, if you're using closed loop communication, seven to eight people may be talking to you while you are thinking about all of this. This is why it's incredibly important to offload some of that off of the leader and a checklist can do that. It is not a sign of weakness. Uh, you As a human, you cannot think about all of these things at once. This was discovered very early on in aviation and and in space. Pilots or astronauts would never consider taking that cognitive load on. It's just not safe. So in an emergency, somebody must have the ability to problem solve and communicate. And the, the midwife and the physician need to be able to do that. Having all of the other tasks in some kind of structure and being managed by a nurse that can make sure all of these things are getting done just supports the work that that person who's ultimately responsible for the patient has. Most physicians and midwives don't sit down and think about this cognitive load. And I have had, I can't tell you how many physicians that I think are just excellent come to me and say, I'm not going to participate in simulation because people will understand that I don't know what I'm doing. And I think to translate that, I think what they mean is, I can't do all of these things simultaneously at once. I have to be the leader in an emergency, and I can't have people watching this process that I'm trying to do all these things at once on video. Stephanie, have you had experience this way?
0: Well, yeah, I used to feel that way before, you know, when I was first getting introduced into the world of simulation, um, you know, I absolutely had those same feelings. I was afraid, you know, everybody would understand that I didn't really know what to do in that situation, or maybe I felt like I needed to be in control of what everyone else was doing in the room. And, um, you know, you and Suzanne say over and over, you know, the nurse runs the room, the physician runs the patient, but I wasn't trained that way in the beginning. And it was the physician runs everything and everyone's looking to you to do everything and be in control of everything. One of, the uh, uh, books that I read early on in my medical career is called the house of God. And there's a line in there, I forget the author, but it's a, a really interesting book. And there's a line in there that says, don't be afraid to ask for help just remember that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And that resonates with a lot of physicians because that's how we feel inside. So I think giving us permission to use a checklist because we're human beings who simply physiologically cannot do all the things that are being asked of us and allowing everyone else there that's participating in the emergency to do their part and relieve The responsibility, so that just like you said, the physician or the midwife or whoever's in charge of that emergency can now do the thing that they're good at and not figure out who's putting in the IVs. That is so true.
1: Um, I I know many physicians um, and midwives that in debriefing have have alluded to that that they felt the whole emergency was riding on them and it it is just overwhelming. So. I, I like the idea, though, of calling for help, and, and I just want to add a thought. Um, calling for help can can be something in and of itself that you can put some structure to. And I had the benefit of learning a lot about simulation from Dr. Lou Halamick, who I worked with for years at CAPE, the Center for Advanced Pediatric and Perinatal Education, and One of the things that he teaches, which I find particularly helpful, is if you are calling for help, it is usually for one of two things. You either need someone to do tasks. You have a lot of things that need to get done and you don't have enough people. So what your mind is thinking about at that point is, I need this skill set and I need this skill set person with this skill set to do this particular task. So that's mainly what you're thinking about. And a checklist can help you look at all those tasks that need to be done, and if you are the, the person responsible, getting those things done so you don't forget anything. The other reason that you could potentially need help is that you don't know what's going on and you need help figuring out. Uh, what to do next. You need brain power. And in that situation, what is critical is that you have all of the facts that will help this person figure out with you what's going on. So it's a shift in focus to more patient-centered. This is in the past. Uh, patient has this history. This has happened. This is how she responded to this. This is what we've done so far. This is what's still happening. So. Even in that situation, a checklist can help look at the different aspects that are options for you when you're trying to figure out what's going on with this patient and what needs to be done next. And and last, um, I think one of the things that happens often in healthcare is an error called task fixation. and. That task fixation occurs when you have a particular task, and you can't complete it, and you continue to complete it, and you keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, and you just can't get it. So if you want to think of an example, um, you can't get an intubation in a neonate, so the neonate doesn't get bagged for two minutes or you can't get a second IV, in, and the nurse tries and tries and tries instead of letting uh, another person know are going for an, an easier site. So tax fixation is a huge problem in healthcare, and the checklist can help with that. And as someone's looking around the room at all the tasks that need to be done, if someone is stuck on a task, it can be verbalized. And that's the best way to get someone out of uh, fixation, is to verbalize it and then figure out what other options are available to get that task accomplished.
2: Thanks, Julie. Uh, I always learn so much from your vast expertise and experience in not just simulation but in team training for obstetric emergencies and i appreciate you and what you bring to our team uh, every time we're together so to summarize uh, regarding checklist checklists are a tool that have been used in many many industries that are considered highly reliable and safe we gave the example of Uh, Space, Um, we gave the example of flying uh, an airplane, Um, but patient is the weather. And I love that um, scenario, that analogy that you use. Um, We need to determine in healthcare how we're gonna utilize checklist uh, and to help them uh, in our care, provide the best, most timely care for our patients in an emergency. So checklist in healthcare won't be exactly like use in other industries, but the value cannot be disputed. So I think that has been well demonstrated. So thank you for listening to our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics on Twitter, at obcriticalcare, and on Instagram, at criticalcareob. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. For a list of references on today's topic, go to the Read app at qxmd.com apps, or to our Critical Concepts in Obstetrics, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics website, So thank you again for listening to our podcast. See you next time.
0: This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baer. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to NashvillePodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is NashvillePodcast at gmail.com.